Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Successful Failure and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 22, 2007. Christians have bickered and battled across the centuries, often over matters of arcane minutiae. In the 17th century, for example, Russian Orthodox old believers separated from the Moscow church because they objected to some liturgical reforms that were made by Patriarch Nikon, and so they insisted on making the sign of the cross with two fingers instead of three fingers. At other times, though, Christians have deeply disagreed over practical matters of extreme importance, like how to deal with its own doubters, deniers, traitors, and betrayers, people who've confessed Jesus as Lord but then failed. How should the church treat ministerial failure and moral fault? To preserve its purity and integrity, should it purge itself of such failures? Or in the name of love, should it forgive and forget? Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, and Ted Haggard were not the first people, nor the last, to provoke this question. The controversy stretches back to the early persecutions of Christians under the Roman emperors, and even to this week's lectionary readings. Some persecutions erupted due to the personal whim of a psychopath like Nero. When a fire broke out in Rome on June the 18th, A.D. 64, and destroyed about half of the city, Nero blamed the Christians. In his book called The Annals, the Roman historian Tacitus writes that Nero punished the Christians with what he called, quote-unquote, refined cruelty. <clears throat> Before killing the Christians, writes Tacitus, Nero, quote, amused the people with sadistic tortures. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire in the night so that they might illumine it. Nero opened his garden for these shows, and in the circus he, he himself became a spectacle, for he mingled with the people dressed like a charioteer." End quote. Other persecutions resulted from systematic state policy. Under Decius, Christians faced a horrible choice. Should they obey the imperial decree to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods and burn incense before a statue of the emperor, or should they refuse and suffer the consequences? Should they deny their faith in order to live? The last and most severe persecutions came under Diocletian in the years 303 and 304. In his book, Ecclesiastical History, Eusebius records the edict that Diocletian issued on February the 24th, 303. Quote, it was enacted that the meetings of the Christians should be abolished, churches be razed to the ground, that the scriptures be destroyed by fire, that those holding office be deposed, 
and they of their household deprived of freedom if they persisted in their profession of Christianity. End quote. The early believers respond to these trials and temptations in different ways. Some Christians genuinely renounced their faith. Others recanted, but did so with their fingers crossed, so to speak. Still others tried to hide. Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage in North Africa, fled, believing that he would do better to give wisdom to the church at a distance. If you had money or connections, maybe a pagan friend could have provided you with what was called a libellus, a certificate that verified you had obeyed the imperial decree. Some Christians relinquished their Bibles and religious relics to civil authorities to be burned in public bonfires. Then there were what were called the traditors, literally those who had handed over. This became a technical term for those who betrayed fellow Christians to the Roman government by providing names and addresses. These saints treaded a thin line between cowardice and wisdom, between failure and fortitude. There were many heroes and martyrs in those days whose bravery inspires and challenges us today. But there were also many Christians in those days who failed the faith in greater or lesser degree and for a whole range of reasons. Weakness, fear, deception, stupidity, rationalization, cooperation, and of course, self-preservation. They forced the church to address very practical questions that resound down to today. When Constantine declared Christianity a legal religion, for example, some believers who had renounced their faith wanted to return to full church communion. And some priests re-entered positions of clerical authority. Was that right? Had the traditors committed unforgivable sins? Could someone who had publicly renounced their faith truly repent? How should the church care for Christians struggling with shame, blame, regret, and self-recrimination? Were the sacraments performed by fallen priests invalid? Or was genuine ministry independent of the holiness of the minister? What are the implications of the obvious truth that no one lives a blameless life? In this week's Gospel of John, Peter is eating breakfast on the shores of the Sea of Galilee with the resurrected Jesus. Dirty, wet, and tired from fishing all night, Peter huddled around a fire of burning coals. As he extended the palms of his hands to warm himself before the crackling fire, Jesus asked Peter not once, but three times, Peter, do you really love me? And three times Peter responded, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. John writes in 21 verse 17 that Peter was hurt by Jesus' query. The triple question clearly evoked 
a deeply painful memory for Peter. The last time he stood around a campfire just a few days earlier, he had denied three times that he even knew Jesus. John 18, verse 18, and Luke 22, verse 55. But Jesus reinstated Peter three times with the words, Feed my sheep. And he went on to become the movement's leader. Similarly, this week's reading from the book of Acts tells the story of Paul's Damascus Road conversion, Acts chapter 9. It's a story of how the greatest persecutor of the church became its greatest propagator, eventually traveling over 10,000 miles to spread the good news before dying a martyr's death in Rome. Before his conversion, Paul was what we might call the consummate traitor. We read in Acts 9 that he was breathing out murderous threats and aggressively seeking to imprison believers. Years later, as an old man, he wrote to his young protege, Timothy, and even in those later years, he remembered his past to Timothy with remarkable candor. We read in 1 Timothy 1.13, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, the chief of all sinners. But like Peter, Paul also transcended his past, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Philippians 3, 13, and 14. Peter, Paul, and traitors of every sort remind us that some of the most prominent people in God's story of redemption experienced extraordinary failure, but moved beyond it to become the people that God called them to be. Moses was a murderer. Jacob and Esau were conniving rascals from a dysfunctional family. And King David was an adulterer who murdered his lover's husband. These people became what I call successful failures. They experienced the liberating truth spoken so well by St. Maximus the Confessor in the 7th century. The person who has come to know the weakness of human nature has gained experience of divine power. Such a person never belittles anyone, for he knows that God is like a good and loving physician who heals with individual treatment each of us who is trying to make progress." End quote. And now for further reflection. Consider the words of Martin Luther. If you are a preacher of divine grace, then preach true grace and not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, then you must bear a true and not a fictitious sin. God does not save people who are merely fictitious sinners. Number two, how have you dealt with personal failure. Number three, consider this week's psalm, Psalm 30, verse 11. You turn my wailing into dancing. 
You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. And finally, see the little book by Henry Nowen, In the Name of Jesus, which explores John chapter 21, where Jesus reinstates Peter. For books this week, I review Harold Bloom and Jesse Zuba, editors. The title of the book is American Religious Poems, an Anthology. New York, the Library of America, 2006, 685 pages. Here under one cover is a poetry lover's gold mine. Over 900 poems by 200 poets about all things religious. The editors, Bloom and Zuba, have defined religion very broadly, both in terms of faith traditions and subject matter, the skeptical and the unconventional, the result being poems and poets that reflect the diverse and plural religious perspectives in American history, including Native American, African American, Buddhist, Sufi, Deist, Jewish, Unitarian, Protestant, Catholic, and dozens more. The poems are arranged chronologically, beginning with the, with the 1640 Bay Psalm book, which was the first book printed in the colonies, and ending with Brett Foster, who was born in 1973 and is currently a professor at Wheaton College. After the 900-plus poems, there are 14 American Indian songs and chants, and then 14 spirituals and anonymous hymns, such as Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel and Free at Last. A Reader's Guide to Religious Terms, a Name Index of Poets, and an Index of Poem Titles and First Lines complete the volume. I was disappointed in Bloom's so-called introduction, which was really little more than a short technical essay on Walt Whitman, whom he considers our prime shaman of American religion, and then reflections on Emily Dickinson, Whitman's only possible rival in American poetry, according to Bloom. A broader treatment would have served a general readership much better. Nor is there any introduction to the poems or their poets save their date of birth. Still, this is a literary treasure trove, and I was sorry I had to return it to the public library. Between its two covers, there's enough poetry for a lifetime of meditation and reflection. American Religious Poems, edited by Harold Bloom and Jesse Zuba. For film this week, I review the Mexican film Babel from the year 2006. With the film Babel, the Mexican director Alejandro González Iñárritu completes his trilogy that he began with Amaro's Paris and then 21 Grams. He demonstrates just how powerful movie making can be in the hands of an artistic genius. Inuritu connects four deeply human stories by the tragic and unintended consequences of a random act. In the desert mountains of Morocco, 
two little boys shoot at a tour bus while playing with a rifle that their father bought to shoot jackals. In San Diego, Susan and Richard travel to Morocco to heal their marriage, but encounter tragedy on that, on that same tour bus. In Mexico, the nanny and illegal immigrant, Amelia, attends her son's wedding, but runs afoul of the law when she tries to re-enter the United States. And then in Tokyo, the deaf and mute teenager, Chico, serves for love in all, searches for love in all the wrong ways to overcome the fallout of her mother's suicide and her father's emotional distance. Babel, the title comes from Genesis 11 in the Bible, is a cinematic metaphor for a postmodern global age, ambitious in scope and layered with multiple themes. Family, the collision of cultures, poverty, helplessness before state power and petty bureaucrats, human estrangement, misinformation and miscommunication, international terrorism, and fate. Every component of this film, the soundtrack, including an unforgettable scene in a Tokyo disco when the pounding music goes silent in order to simulate Chico's deafness, the scenery, narrative, and cinematography all combine for an overwhelming effect. Give your heart and mind to this film and its characters, and you'll leave the theater on mental, spiritual, and emotional overlord, overload. This film is in Moroccan Arabic, Spanish, Japanese, English Sign Language, written notes, cell phone video and text message, and English subtitles so that in many scenes the viewer knows more than the characters who do, who do not or cannot understand what is happening. Babel from the year 2006. And finally, for poetry, we've posted the poem Task to Be Who I Am by the Swedish poet Thomas Tranströmer who was born in 1931. I'm ordered out to a big hump of stone, as if I were an aristocratic corpse from the Iron Age. The rest are still back in the tent sleeping, stretched out like spokes in a wheel. In the tent, the stove is boss, the big snake that swallows a ball of fire and hisses. It is silent out here in the spring night amongst the stones waiting for the dawn. In the cold, I start to fly like a shaman to her body. Some places pale from her swimming suit. The sun shone right on us. The moss was hot. I brush along the side of warm moments, but I can't stay here long. I am whistled back through space. I crawl among the stones back to here and now. Task to be where I am. Even when I am in this solemn and absurd role, I am still the place where creation does a little work on itself.
Dawn comes. The sparse tree trunks take on color now. The frost-bitten forest flowers form a silent search party after something that has disappeared in the dark. But to be where I am and to wait. I am full of anxiety, obstinate, confused. Things not yet happened are here and now. I feel that. They're just out there. A murmuring mass outside the barrier. They can only slip in one by one. They want to slip in. Why? They do one by one. I am the turnstile. The Swedish poet Thomas Strandströmer. The title of the poem is Task to Be Who I Am, a reflection on his night as an army patrol person. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 22nd, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.